You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing, where our team of journalists analyze the most important events of the day within the framework of key Real Vision themes. That's macro, liquidity, market structure, and crypto. We cover it all. Hi, I'm Nick Correa for Real Vision. It's Wednesday, April 8th, 3.30 p.m. in North Arlington, New Jersey, where I'm reporting from. We have Ash Bennington and Roger Hurst standing by for their market analysis. But before we go to them, let's take a quick look at the latest news and data on the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Yesterday, over 7,000 people died from the virus, a new record for daily global deaths. In Italy, we're seeing the net active cases curve flattening. Remember, this is taking into account recoveries as well as new infections. While in Spain, France, and Germany, the virus continues to spread. But it's not just about cases, it's about preparation and equipment. Germany will likely have enough intensive care unit beds to treat all their patients, while Spain and France do not, according to the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. And in the United Kingdom, the situation is even worse. The IHME model shows over 24,000 ICU beds will be needed, with only 799 available. One of those ICU beds is inhabited by the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who continues his battle against the coronavirus. Britain does not have a codified order of succession and it remains unclear how much responsibility Dominic Robb, Britain's foreign secretary and Johnson's de facto number two, will take on. In the US, the total confirmed count surpassed the 400,000 mark today. Over 1,900 Americans died yesterday from the virus. As a result, now more Americans have officially died from COVID-19 than they did from swine flu in 2009 and the number of deaths is set to peak in four days, according to the IHME model. In markets, American stocks had a strong day, as did oil, and capital flowed into investment-grade and high-yield credit, as the U.S. 10-year sold off. Lastly, the National Multifamily Housing Council found that only 69% of households paid rent in April. This marks a 12% decrease from March. Now let's go to Real Vision's Ash Bennington and Roger Hurst for their market analysis. Thanks, Nick. I'm Ash Bennington from New York, here with Roger Hurst coming to us from our London bureau. Welcome, Roger. Hi again. Well, Roger, you know, markets are on a roller coaster again. We're up about 3% uh, on the day on the Dow and the S&P as we're, uh, as we're taping this. Um, you know, what are your thoughts? Well, I think it's, it, I mean, there's a lot of talk at the moment about this size of this bounce and people are saying, you know, we're doing this V-shaped rally. And it's, I think there's a little bit of misunderstanding or misconception in that um, you know the size of the sell-off was so far and so fast that you should always expect a bounce. And you can look at pretty much every other bounce of all the major sell-offs we've had in the last 10, 15, 20 years. And this one is no more impressive. In fact, it's actually less impressive so far than nearly all of those. So this is not, you know, we're seeing a big bounce in terms of points. We're not seeing a big bounce in terms of retracement of the original sell-off. That's such a key point. And Roger, just to put it in context a little bit here. So we're taping midday on Wednesday. Um, so from uh, from Friday's close, we're up about uh, nine uh, nine point four percent on the S and P, about ten percent on the Dow. 
Um, and just to put this a little bit in context, for, from the all-time high the S&P reached on uh, Wednesday, February 19th, we are down about 19.6%. So we're down about 20%, uh, obviously a signal bear market. Here's an interesting point. Uh, from the lows reached on Monday, March 23rd, on the close, we are up 21.8%, technically in uh, a bull market. You know, this is a peak to trough, max drawdown from February 19th to March 23rd of minus 33%. How do you think about that in terms of the broader context of what you were just saying about technical levels? Well, I use Fibonacci's not because I believe in them religiously, but I just find them a great um, guideline, good, good use to use them to sort of work out where we think things might be going. And unfortunately, we're now in no man's land. It's a very dangerous bit between uh, the 38% retracement and the 62% retracement. And generally, we can expect markets to bounce at least 38% of the original sell-off and more likely 50 to 62%. And we can actually compare it to pretty much all these big sellers that we've had. I mean, 2015, 2016 saw, I think, around about those sorts of levels of 50, 62% rebounds. 2018, the Volmageddon, it bounced 76% before it rolled over. And I think a lot of the reason why people are looking at the V-shape today is because of what we saw out of the bottom of 2018, that was the low of 24th of December, where we did get a V-shaped rally, but we'd already sold off once from, was it September, October, bounced around about 62%, and then rolled over again into the lows. So we took out the lows of that first initial sell-off. 1987, similar patterns. In, in Japan in 1989, it wasn't a straight line down and then straight out. It fell, it bounced 50%, then it fell again. I think it was a 40% fall the second time round. Then it bounced another 50% and rolled over. But it took that second time, it took 14 months. The question that people are asking here is, do we immediately retest the lows? Do we kind of get this bounce 50, 60% and then over six months retest the lows? Or do we just bounce straight out? And the reason why people think we bounce straight out is one, we've had a big bounce and people always get more optimistic after that. And secondly, the size of the Fed's intervention and the size of the fiscal intervention. But that's, I think we've all sort of talked about this before. That's a state like- before, before we switch over to the fiscal and monetary policy, you know, you, you've been around markets for a very long time. And obviously just listening to you explain the context of those, of those past sell-offs, what the pattern looked like. Just give us a little bit, if you could, of a clinic, of a briefer, of a primer on, on the way that you think about Fibonacci sequences, what they are and why they're so important to understanding market momentum. Well, it's just that you know these, these, are, these are retracement levels, simple retracement levels. And people talk about the big ones being because 23, 38, 50, 62, and I'm rounding these numbers, and then 76. Right. And the way most people would think about it is that you can have a 62% retracement and keep the main down, down move in place. So if we have the big sell-off, you can bounce 62% of that, and then you can sell off again, and you've not broken the downtrend. People would say that after 62%, you've actually now broken the downtrend and you're back into an uptrend towards the highs. That doesn't always happen, but you use these as a basic rule of thumb. And it's difficult now where for traders, fine, but if I'm an investor and we've already bounced 40 and I'm thinking 62 is the maximum percent of the, of the actual sell-off, then there's not that much more to play for unless I'm trading this. And to trade this, I've got to be staring at my screen all day, every day. Right. You know, another important distinction, we're talking about a potential uh, V-shaped rally, but do we have a V-shaped rally uh, and a U-shaped economic recovery? And I think this was the point that you were beginning to touch on 
there. Uh, you know, we've obviously had massive real destruction in the economy. We've got fiscal policy. We've got monetary policy coming online to try and soften that blow, to try and normalize the cycle, to try and just stanch some of the bleeding. When you think about the monetary policy and the fiscal policy, how do you rate what's happening right now? And what's your future prognosis with that policy action in place? Well, I think there's three things, but talking of the fiscal and the monetary first, it's you'd give them a very high score for the speed and size of their reaction. No question about it. I mean, it took them a long time. In 2000, I mean, about 2007, it was 2007 to 2009. It was a one and a half, nearly two year affair to, to actually deal with that, um, that whole process. This time round, they've got involved very, very early because they know how to deal with a financial crisis. So that's great. It's a stabilizer. It's not a stimulus. So that's number one. Number two is the way that people seem to be thinking of this economy. And because of that stimulus and the size of that stimulus, they think that this economy, which effectively was switched off with the flick of a switch, the light went out. Well, we switch the flick back and it comes on again. In reality, you've got to think about this more as turning up the dimmer switch. We flick the lights off and turning them on, we're going to turn that dimmer switch and the lights will slowly come on over a significant period of time. And I think that is the, the sort of real element here, that this is a long process of recovery in which we will be in recession-style territory for a lot of sectors for the foreseeable future. And this is assuming that we've got on top of the whole virus situation, which you know, I don't know anything about these in, in reality, but it seems that the only re reason why we have is because of, of, of distancing. But the minute we get distancing reduced, they'll right. come back. So we know that this is going to be a long-term process. Yeah, you know, and, and of course, that naturally talks about what uh, what's required to, uh, to reopen the economy. You know, I, I've, I've been seeing that there are a few key benchmarks that the experts on the, on the disease control side are pointing to um, here in the U.S. and I think more broadly. Uh, the first is broad-based testing, the ability to do testing on large swaths of a population. Um, the second is uh, the ability to track disease patients. And the third is what they call just broader disease surveillance. Uh, you know, in the U.S., it seems like we're a long way away from being able to implement those kinds of changes. Where are you in Britain right now? And how do you think about the way the West more broadly is responding in that context? I mean, UK is like a lot of a lot of Europe and the US with miles behind. We're not going to get any tests anytime soon. I think we got a whole bunch of tests from China that don't work, funnily enough. And so we, we basically it's going to be a very slow process. And, and we've got to remember with all of this, it's the, the unfortunate staggering reality is that to get the sort of volume that we need is a slow process because people talk about you know, if they find a vaccine, well, finding a vaccine is very different from producing a vaccine for millions and billions of people. It just doesn't have to happen quickly. And as we know, with many, many other diseases, unfortunately, large swathes of the global population will never be able to get those vaccines. And one thing to look, well, another way to look at this in some ways is, you know, what we're talking about one million people have been tested as positive. Well, let's say they're out um, in terms of the number of people who have it by a factor of 1,000. So let's say that actually a billion people have had in some shape or form this illness. That still leaves 7 billion who haven't. That's a lot of people, and that's that this whole thing has got to get through before we can say we're coming to near an end of the whole kind of the process. So the numbers just don't add up as they currently stand. All we're seeing is the idea that we've got a victory over the, uh, over the virus by creating this most incredible level of distancing and isolation that's put our economies into hibernation. Well, we've got to keep our economies in hibernation and the distancing in order to stay on top of the transmission. 
So that's why we're going to take so long to bring this back, which is why the that long-term process is so important, which brings me on to that very third bit I was talking about earlier, which is in this environment with so many people in lockdown, that liquidity from the fiscal authorities and the monetary authorities has to hit home rapidly. And just like everything else on scale of this size, it will take so long and most of the mechanisms aren't even set up to hit the real economy. So the real economy will suffer as people work, as the authorities work this out. Yeah, you know, in terms of just uncertainty, which is a, a term that seems to come up a lot when we talk about this, there were reports coming out of China. So Wuhan uh, spent uh, 77 days under rather extreme lockdown. Uh, and there was a report that came out uh, not long ago that stated that um, that there were that there were dozens of asymptomatic cases, and an official newspaper uh, on Monday said there could be as many as 10 to 20,000 asymptomatic cases still extant in Wuhan province. And then the report was swiftly deleted uh, by the authorities in China. And it just, you know, it's just something that gives you a, a kind of a context or maybe even a metaphor for the level of uncertainty that we have around precisely the point you made, Roger, which is if you're not doing massive testing, if you don't have the ability to test huge numbers of people, there's a tremendous degree of uncertainty about who's had it and who hasn't and what that means for the broader population spread pattern. Yeah, and, and you know, we, one way I sort of look at this as well, again, going back to the markets and fear, and people sort of talk about, you know, the VIX and the VIX, which has come down from those incredible highs of over 80, nearly 90. Well, it's still in the 40s. This is still a level of fear. In any other scenario, this is a sort of spike which had us all running to the hills. The mm. problem is that this VIX is at a level which is unlikely to subside quickly, just like I don't think that the economy will recover quickly. And the problem with that and the VIX being here and the problem for the market is that the, the market that was there before all this started is no longer there today. So it goes back to the whole V and the whole economy. People talking about the V because we've got the liquidity from fiscal and monetary authorities. But what happened prior to February and the rate, way the market really operated was that the money came in from pension funds into smart beta risk parity type funds. These are the rules based quasi passives. And it went in via low volatility and low interest rates into buybacks. We both know that those aren't there. So how's the transmission mechanism going to work this time for fiscal and more importantly monetary for the for the financial assets that monetary authority liquidity getting into the market this time when the buybacks have gone so you've got a broken framework you've got an economy that i can't see how it can come back to real life anytime soon and then within that you've got this massive uncertainty on top of that that to me is a recipe for not so much disaster, but it's a dangerous recipe because this hope that we currently have, and it's slightly misplaced hope because you know, the headlines you see on Bloomberg, the headlines you see on Reuters, all the headlines that you read are ones of sort of this optimism the market is bouncing because cases are slowing. Well, they're not slowing. I mean, in, in Spain, they haven't slowed. They've actually picked up again. In the UK, they haven't slowed. They're sort of picked up again. And in Singapore and Asia, they're picking up again. So the market is bouncing because it wanted to bounce because it got oversold, and therefore the headlines of it slowing fit the bounce. But it would have bounced anyway. If you turned off your Bloomberg screens and you turned off your Reuters screens, it would have bounced anyway. Is it going to bounce 62% or just the 38 to 50% we've currently got? No one really knows, which is why this is no man's land. It's a death trap apart from traders. But that's the difficulty that we're faced with here. Should we be selling it when we get a 62% retracement? Yeah, if you didn't get out the first time, you probably should. I personally probably wouldn't want to buy this until we made new all-time highs. 
That's interesting. You know, you provide some much needed context there. You know, so so much of what we read about now uh, is about the is about the crisis and the response to the crisis. But what you're saying is, look. This crisis didn't happen in a vacuum. This crisis happened at, after a particular series of events that had led to the market to a particular place. Uh, and you talk about the changes that uh, passive indexation had created and, uh, and what the impact of that had was to get to the baseline, the zero effect, right, the day before the crisis broke. And those you know, mechanisms are still very much in place and still very much remain to filter through the system. It's a really interesting point uh, and one that I know that you've, uh, you've spent a great deal of time thinking about. You know, to switch gears a little bit here to some of the numbers uh, on the policy response side, there's about $20 trillion now in the system uh, that is going to be used in, uh, in, in, in response on the fiscal and monetary side combined. We have uh, an original package, the, the CARES Act, uh, so-called, uh, here in the U.S., which is a $2.3 trillion package. Um, but, you know, these numbers sound really large, and they, and they are uh, relative, you know, to the size of a $20 trillion some odd dollar economy. Um, but one of the one of the one of the challenges I think that's been overlooked in this is when people focus just on the on the abstract kind of platonic ideal of what the numbers are is you know this this money actually has to make its way into the real economy. It's easier to do that on the on the monetary side because central banks can enact liquidity facilities and they can very rapidly uh, execute through their trading desks. But getting money into the real economy on the fiscal side is a challenge. There have been a lot of reports recently about how states have struggled uh, with the volume of unemployment claims, um, where, how um, you know some of the states, New York, California, and Pennsylvania, there are reports uh, that they rely on COBOL language systems. This is the 1960s and 1970s style mainframes to process these claims. Uh, lenders have been swamped by the uh, payroll protection program requests. They literally, their websites are crashing. Um, so you have, you know, you have the I policy response in the ideal world, and then you have the policy response in the real world, where you actually have to get this money into the hands of individuals, into the hands of small businesses. And um, you know, that's another component of the calculus that I'm not really sure has been factors in, factored in as cleanly and as elegantly as we think it has. It's in some ways you think of it in, in terms of charities because you know the charities are nearly always um, judged off what percentage of each dollar actually makes it to the end user because we know that for every dollar that's given to a charity, far less than a dollar gets through. So for every dollar that's given through the various schemes, far less than a dollar will get through. And I think it was something like, I might be wrong on this number, but it's 1.7 trillion of demand went into the first 350 billion of, um, of potential um, handouts. So the demand is there. And this is the real economy. And it's just a sheer scale of this, not just in the US, but globally. The scale that we're dealing with, there is an inability to process this volume of requests, this volume of potential failures, this volume of, of potential support systems that we need in place in so many different parts of the economy, ranging from those who never had any money in the first place, those who are seeing their future income falling because dividends and, and, uh, and yields in general have collapsed, the pension side of it um, is a decline in demand as well. So when you actually add all these together, I think this is going to be one of these scenarios where we're going to see firefighting in little parts of the economy, well, big parts, but in areas one at a time. And so it's going to be kind of wait your turn. So they might deal with the essential parts first. It's a bit like when I talk to my parents. My parents go, you know, we're going to be in lockdown for six months, maybe 12 months, because at the end of the day, we're over 80 and we're OK because we're locked down. But we're the least important people here. So we will get our vaccination when it comes and all the other stuff last in the queue, because clearly nurses and the people on the front line are going to get that first. 
Well, that's the same in the real economy. This is how it's working. And to scale that up, I mean, or think about that at scale, it's, it's a phenomenal request and requirement. And these numbers don't touch the actual loss in theoretical wealth. And it was theoretical wealth because it was not, um, not you know, cashed in, but theoretical wealth that's been lost and the additional problems of future liabilities for the global pension system. The numbers we're talking about are tiny when compared to the reality of, of what's at stake. Uh, yeah, um, you know, t talking about numbers uh, and uh, how this has an impact on real people, there was a, a, a survey that came out by, by a group called the National uh, Multifamily Housing Council, which uh, is uh, said enough to put you to sleep, but it's a consortium of real estate data providers. Uh, and the data point that I thought was incredibly striking was that nearly a third of U.S. apartment renters uh, did not make their rent payments in April. Um, you know, this is a, a both a measure of stress in the system, and also I suppose you can wonder uh, a, a metric of, of of risk to come in the real economy. Obviously, rent payments uh, you know get fed back into the system, and if you have a third of people not making them, I think the number was 69 percent uh, made their rent payments. You know, when when those numbers begin to uh, you know, accumulate month after month, that's, that's significant damage. I spoke to a friend of mine who lives on the 49th floor of his apartment building, and uh, he said his building is deserted. And his fear is that if people who've left the building are no longer paying their rents, that the building staff isn't going to be there. I mean, these are just basic concerns. How do you, you, know, how do you live in a 49-story building if you, don't have a, if you don't have a cadre of good union you know, guys doing the, doing the work that needs to get done? Um, and the feed-throughs then, you know, then translate out into a macroeconomic level, uh, and um, th these are some these are some scary times. And I think there's some dangerous narratives going around, which are akin to what we had with some of the hurricanes that came through the U.S. Remember, there's some people used to say a hurricane's good; we'll get growth out of a hurricane because we rebuild things. And this is the sort of mentality that's going around today, which is, oh, you know, we'll we'll create so much liquidity that things will be better. Well, things were broken in the first place, and things were only being supported by, um, you know, this excessive, and it was a bubble in central banks. And this is probably one of the main reasons why this is, you know, now has become an issue, which the Pandora's box has been opened, is that, you know, before I joined Real Vision, I spent 10 years or more writing for, various, for my various clients about how the overall economy was completely broken. And what the economy really loved wasn't growth, but very, very low growth and government liquidity. And if you look at all the best periods for the equity market um, over the last 10 years, it's when we nearly got to zero, we got to about 1%, and the central banks panicked and produced more liquidity. The economy was broken, the actual mechanism was broken, but it was brilliant for equities because it was bullish. Right. That system is now going, well, you know, that was the emperor wearing no clothes, and you know, this is now what we're seeing. I just don't see how we can go back to that system that wasn't working, that's now been broken because the main protagonists are no longer playing, as we mentioned before, yeah. and just throw a bunch of liquidity at it. Throw the liquidity in, low velocity of money, it'll probably hit home at, what, 50% maybe, if we're lucky. So for every 10 trillion that we, they're talking about, maybe that's 5 trillion of real money with zero velocity. That's not a story for growth, and it's not a reason why I want to buy the equity market. Now, of course, the big question that we have, and the one I can't answer, and no one really can, is, can the response from central banks and governments be bigger than the crisis? But then you come to this the bizarre conclusion that, well, that's the case, then, in fact, we never have to worry about equity markets ever again, because central banks with liquidity and governments with fiscal stimulus can always overcome a pullback in the equity market. I know that's ridiculous. You know that's ridiculous. 
But in yeah. some ways, that's the narrative that's currently building around. Yeah, and it also you're you're also talking about de facto the the death of free market capitalism, right? If central banks are permanently running the economy, if fiscal policy is the driver of uh, of aggregate demand, you've effectively lost the ability of markets to operate freely, uh, you know, to allocate capital, to price risk, and to and to serve the demand uh, that organically arises out of a, out of a free market system, and those are and those are very scary things. Look. I, you know, I, one of the things that I've been, uh, you know, kind of banging the table about is this: the level of mathematization of of the U.S. economy. Right? It's it's almost like uh, it's almost like the uh, it's almost like we're LTCMifying the economy. Right? You have you have these guys with PhDs in, in economics from places like Harvard and MIT, and and they have these models, and they they live in a world where you know you modify an input over here, then there's a whole string of calculus, and then you get an output over here. And look, these are very smart people, and they've they've done their homework, and they've done you know regression analysis, and they've back tested, and they've put in historical data. But you know, my point has always been, you know, that may work from going from two to four, but do you know if it works when the numbers are in the 30s? There's no historical data that serves as a um, that serves as an acid test about whether that will happen because we are in completely uncharted waters here. I, I spoke to someone. Uh, Who's who's you know close to the administration, close to the people who are making policies uh, earlier this morning, and I said, look, you know, it's great, it's great to hear from from these from these brilliant luminaries who have these PhDs in economics, but I want to hear from guys who own supermarkets. I want to hear from people who I can ask, like, are you getting toilet paper? Your your folks, your frontline employees, who are the ones who are driving the trucks, who are running the cash registers, who are stocking the shelves, are they calling in sick? You know, are are they leaving town? Are they are the folks in their twenties going? Going back to Ohio to live with their parents because you know New York is too expensive and too dangerous and too chaotic. Uh, yeah, these are these are all problems that cannot be solved by Fed liquidity facilities. These are problems that are operational problems in in in, a, in the U.S. economy. And um, you know, I don't want to be too gloom and doom about this. We we may we may actually be able to to get this stuff sorted out. But the important point, I think. The crucial point is we just don't know because none of these things have ever been tested at the levels we're at right now. We've never had to respond to a crisis like this before. It's unique when there are banking crises, when there are financial crises. We know the mechanisms. We know the levers to pull. We know what the inputs look like, and we know what comes out the other side of the funnel. In this case, it's just totally uncharted water. And, um, you know, listen, we may outperform our wildest expectations. but. To assume that to be the case seems to be taking a lot of risk. I mean, it's one of those things where you, what you just said at the beginning there is, I think I said um, or referred to it in the first one of these that I did, which is that the world has become one large LTCM because everybody has basically, um, everybody has become the same model of investment, which has been around effectively suppressed volatility and the hunt for yield. That was what everybody did and everybody levered into it. So that was the thing that was worrying me from five years ago. And I think it was when, you know, I followed John Hussman. I've always loved his work because it's very, very rigorous. And um, it was a combination of that and something that Jonathan Tepper of Variant Perception said when he found something that he'd followed, it was on, on salaries and wages that wasn't working. It was something broken. He said, well, why is it broken? And I remember looking at John Hussman's work and thinking, well, why is it not working? And the only conclusion I could come to in 2015-16 was that it was because we'd seen a shift away from 
floor-based quant investing, this LTM-style investing, this, you know, it was, it was the mathematical investing that had taken over the world in which valuations no longer mattered. And they didn't matter for a very, very long time because we saw expensive stocks get more and more expensive. I think that was the great problem that we had in the market beforehand. And I think in, in some ways, if you want something that's positive, or at least I think is positive out of this, and I think, you know, you probably see it in America, I think we'll see it in Europe, um, is that the individuals, if the individuals allowed to actually kind of get back into play, there is a lot of individual talent and actually individuals, are, people are pretty good at coming up with solutions from the bottom up. But at the moment, we've just become so reliant on the top down. Unfortunately, central banks and what they've done and governments and what they've done, and then we've all ended up relying on them and we've become less innovative. We can see this in productivity, but maybe this will be a productivity boost because the individuals will come back and there will be solutions to this. People will work their way around the inability to get money off governments. They'll find a way around that and they will fix it. But it just feels like this will be a slow and painful process to get there. But I'm sort of optimistic about the individuals from this, although I'm also pessimistic about the pain that we're all going to have to go through before then. Yeah, I think that's very well said. I think that, you know, I believe profoundly in the American economy and the American worker and, and in innovation and, and, and in entrepreneurship to figure out ways to overcome uh, problems. Um, and I think that there will be solutions from the bottom up. Speaking of the top down, it's important for those who weren't around 25 years ago for LTCM, uh, they had uh, two, I believe, Nobel Prize winning economists who were, uh, who were building their models or overseeing the operations there and uh, things did not work out the way they intended. No, it, and it always reminds me that a lot of universities in the UK, they used to offer politics, philosophy and economics. And the point is that philosophy is the bit that we seem to have forgotten with relation to economics. A lot of economics was philosophy because there's no right or wrong answers, but because everything's become mathematical, it's all become data crunching and assuming that using data can therefore predict the future. Well, nothing could have predicted really what happened. And, you know, obviously Rao jumped on when he saw it because it was a kind of, well, how are people going to react? The models didn't react. We've seen a lot of the model-based funds lose staggering amounts of money last month. And I think that's the thing is that we've forgotten in our economics and maybe less in our politics that the philosophy side, that unknowns of the future, where we just sort of sit around and stroke our beards and kind of wonder how it could come out, we've lost that, but we've forgotten that part of the whole scheme and game of, of economics. And I think that, for me, if the philosophy part of economics comes back, it will be good, not that I'm a big fan of economics, but it would be better if that came back into play. It's an excellent point and probably a good place to leave it. Thanks for joining us, Roger. Good to speak to you again, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.